0: It's very appropriate that we should sing, Change My Heart, O God, because whenever I think we're brought face to face with uh, God's commands, one of the uh, uh, key responses I think that we need is an openness for God to change our hearts so that we can respond to his commands. We're going to pray for that in just a minute. But first of all, let me just read to you um, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, the sixth commandment which is very short. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Most of us here, Lord, have known that command for many years. We've owned that command as well as um, something that's important. And yet, Lord, uh, we've already seen In Jesus' hands, from Jesus' lips, we uh, see that it is far more searching than we may have otherwise thought. Please, Lord, um, help us to allow our hearts to be searched. We know that if we come here this morning without an openness to you, then we will leave knowing nothing more of you. But Lord, we know too that you promise that if we come to you with openness of heart, then we can leave this place changed. So please give us the courage and the humility to be open to you, to hear your words. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And in 1923, in Germany, a little-known uh, Austrian Jew published a uh, small book which has actually become one of the, uh, quietly, one of the more most influential works of the 20th century. For years, it was only available in German. But in 1937, it was first translated into English. Its its German title was Ich und Du. And in English, that became I and Thou. The author was a man named Martin Buber. And Buber's argument was that in our relationships with one another, we tend to treat other people as it... Our relationships are actually I-it relationships. Other people are simply an object that uh, we are interested in only because they um, may or may not do something for us or to us. But Buba said, we actually only become fully human when we enter into an I-thou relationship, when we discover another person as a person in their own right, a thou rather than than an it. In many ways, Buber's book was uh, prophetic for the country that he lived in at that time, Germany. Buber witnessed uh, the rise of uh, Adolf Hitler, the progressive dehumanization actually of his own people. Till, uh, in the eyes of Nazi Germany, the, the Jews became subhuman irritations to be eliminated. It would not have been possible to have treated the Jews as they were treated without that prior mental decision to treat them as objects. As Buber would say, to start to have an I it relationship with them rather than I-thou relationship. The Bible is uh, quite clear that that uh, degradation in human relationships is actually fundamental to what has gone wrong with the world. It all began back in the Garden of Eden when uh, God made the man a, uh, a mate in Genesis chapter th- 2 when uh, when she was first ma- made Adam exclaimed this is this is woman literally you could translate it this is from man this is another person who is beautifully complementary to me he said I have discovered an I thou relationship But after the man and the woman sinned, everything was ruined. And uh, a little sentence um, sums that up in Genesis chapter 3. We read in Genesis chapter 3 verse 20, the man named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. In chapter 2, you see, she, she, she was woman, Actually, in chapter 2, what had been named were the animals. But now he names her. And he names her according to what she can do for him. Eve means life. What she will do for him is she she will produce children for him. And that is the primary interest he has in her now. She has become an it to him only of interest insofar as what she can do for him. And it's never long, you see, before I-it relationships descend into murder. Adam and Eve's children were Cain and Abel. Cain murdered Abel as uh, the Nazis murdered the Jews, as every other uh, culture, including our own, turns to murder once we lose the I-thou relationship with other human beings. Those who are murdered, as I hope we're going to see this morning, are always the weak and voiceless ones. This morning we're going to look at this sixth commandment, and it's very brief, you shall not murder, but I hope we're going to see that the implications of it are very, very important for us today first thing we need to do is just sketch out b- briefly, we'll have to be brief, we've, we've um, have so much material to cover. The Old Testament rules about murder. Uh, the Old Testament law is very carefully to, uh, careful to explain that actually not all killing is equally heinous. There, there was a clear um, distinction for instance between the crime of manslaughter, which was treated much more libera- liberally than premeditated murder. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 5, um, there's a lot of other laws in Deuteronomy 19 that are of interest to this as well. But in uh, verse 5, it explains that if um, a couple of people go off into the forest and uh, they're cutting wood and the head flies off the, the, the axe and kills one of the, uh, the people, then um, uh, that is manslaughter, that is not murder. There's a a distinction as well between pure accident and negligence. That becomes particularly clear in Exodus 21, which states that if a a bull gets out and uh, gores someone to death, the owner of that bull is actually innocent unless it can be shown that that bull, bull had a record of being particularly dangerous and he'd ignored it. In that case, the punishment uh, was severe, but not as severe as premeditated murder. Similarly, the Old Testament prescribes the, the death sentence in a, in a number of uh, uh, instances. Some people have, have said that, that completely contradicts the sixth commandment. You may want to discuss that in your, um, uh, uh, your house groups. But uh, I want to suggest that actually there's a clear logic to that in the Old Testament. Paradoxically, the death sentence in the Old Testament, in Old Testament Israel, preserved the sanctity of life. It was uh, hedged around with lots of qualifications, but in the end, end, Israelites needed to see that despising another human life needed to be treated with 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 uh, uh, an equal and proportionate response in order for us to see that no life is worthless, that every life is actually of infinite worth in God's sight. Well, um, we haven't got time to discuss the death sentence. You may want to um, uh, discuss it more. It's certainly complicated in the the modern world. Let me uh, move on, though. Just to uh, um, uh, elaborate really a little bit on what uh, Marisa was saying about what the New Testament says the Old Testament says life is sacred there are certain rules to uh, to, to set out where differences between um, different forms of crime against life, but it is fundamentally sacred. The New Testament goes to the heart of the matter though the New Testament. Says, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus says, murder is not forced, first and foremost about what we do, but about our attitude to other human beings. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Anger, says Jesus, will be treated in the same way as murder in the last judgment. Clearly not all anger is equally sinful, just as not all life-taking is equally sinful. Jesus himself was angry at times. It may be significant that Jesus says it's anger with our brother that he's talking about. Anger is most inappropriate between fellow Christians who ought to be able to resolve issues, to be reconciled. Hence, I think it is that just a couple of uh, verses later, he urges us to sort out our relationships before we come to church. Sitting here seething against a a fellow worshipper, he says, is a very serious sin. Jesus is concerned about a related attitude as well, a rel- attitude which is about despising others. He warns that anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to, to the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. That term was a, an Aramaic term of contempt. It probably came from the, the Hebrew word for, for worthless people, the Rechim, as they're called in the Old Testament. Remember King David dancing with gay abandon before the uh, the Ark of the Covenant as it entered Jerusalem? And his wife, Michael, seeing that and despising him, she says, He has become like the Rakim, the worthless people in the land. Well, that specific insult, says Jesus, may bring you before a local court. But he continues there. A much broader, more general term of contempt. You fool. will bring you before God's judgment and leave you in severe danger of being condemned. You are in danger of the fires of hell. Because you see, in Martin Buber's words, that person has ceased to be a thou, a person made in God's image, who deserves our fullest respect when we insult them like that. They uh, have become an it, a worthless thing, something to, uh, uh, to be eliminated if it gets in our way. And Jesus said, God is furious with that. Anyone who says, you, it, is in danger of the fires of hell. Well, that's a very brief sketch of what um, the Bible says about murder. But I, I want to elaborate Spend most of our time this morning on three issues. I had more and because there are so many that are of importance. But three issues for our world but I think we need to take, to think about very, very seriously. First of those is the issue for, of war, which is very prevalent, very uppermost in our mind at the moment. And once again, if you read the Bible, the Old Testament clearly sanctions certain wars as the lesser of various evils. Um, amongst Christians, there has been a long and distinguished uh, tradition of pacifism, which I have uh, the greatest respect for. Um, but for myself, I am personally persuaded that sometimes war is a necessary evil. But the degree to which we tolerate massive death and suffering amongst people we don't peoples we don't know, whilst actually treasuring the life of every single Westerner seems to me is deeply worrying. I mean, an article in the in The Guardian recently pointed, for instance, to the massive amounts of money which are being spent at the moment on identifying specific tiny bits of human remains uh, found in the wreckage of the World Trade Centre. The uh, latest DNA technology is being used to try to allow grieving families to have at least something of their loved ones to bury. But, says this article, thousands upon thousands of people in the world are dying for the want of a few cheap antibiotics that could be bought with the money spent on just identifying one person and giving them the slightly increased dignity of a burial for their body parts. This article went on to say that, that actually this pinpoints some of the massive inequalities that are going on in our world that actually led to the horror of the World Trade Center. I, I shudder, frankly, every time I hear, especially American politicians, say that the, the atrocity was made all the worse because it was against American lives. I shudder when, when I hear, hear them say that the ongoing war against terrorism is to protect Americans or Westerners because I hear in that phrase an implicit despising of non-Western people. I hear them becoming its to be treated as things rather than vows to be respected. And I hear Jesus say, Anyone who says worthless one is in danger of the fires of hell. Now don't 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 get me wrong. There are times when fighting and um, war, sadly, seem to be necessary. But it is this degraded society that treats the lives of its own citizens as infinitely more valuable than the lives of non-citizens. Much of the decay that happened in the later Roman Empire focused around this obsessive interest in the rights of the citizens, with no interest at all in the barbaroi, the barbarians outside. They overrun Rome. The second uh, (coughs) issue that I want us to think about, which uh, is also very much in the news, is euthanasia. At the moment there is a constant drip, drip of pressure to allow um, euthanasia, or more accurately, physician-assisted suicide for people. Uh, the latest person to be at the centre of that debate was Diane Pretty, who died in May this year of motor neurone disease having failed at the European Court of Human Rights to obtain exemption from prosecution for her husband should he assist her in taking her life and when you see someone like that you cannot help having sympathy for uh, for, for such people after all frankly today doctors do sometimes hasten the death of uh, of someone somewhat in the process of relieving their their suffering when they're terminally ill feels like such a small step to move from uh, accepting that there is a cost sometimes in relieving suffering towards actively ending a person's life. I want to suggest to you there is a great gulf between those two. You must never forget that the great prototype of modern euthanasia legislation was in Nazi Germany in the 1930s where large numbers of the uh, mentally deficient, chronically ill, and, and even First World War amputees were compulsorily killed. Holland has practiced euthanasia for, for more than a decade now, since uh, uh, um, uh, and it, it has tried to keep relatively strict controls on that. But over the years those controls have been weakened and today in Holland there are 4,000 reported cases of euthanasia every year and uh, one recent report suggested that there may be twice as many unreported and of the reported ones, of the ones that doctors were prepared to own up to, one in, uh, in uh, five didn't involve the specific consent of the person concerned. Uh, There's actually a a, a fear amongst elderly people such that there's an increasing practice uh, happening amongst the elderly of carrying cards specifically requesting that they should not be euthanized. Because they at least perceive that there's a presumption on turning off the machines rather than caring for them. always, always in these circumstances the vulnerable who suffer. Those who feel, um, uh, or who are made to feel that their life is not contributing anything to society. Those whom society actually uh, treats as, as things which are no longer worth keeping around. Now, there have been cases of uh, physically healthy young people, young adults who have requested euthanasia. There, there, there was even a case of an elderly man who initially requested euthanasia and his family came from uh, Canada and then he decided he didn't want to die. And the family and the doctors put pressure on him, saying, well, we're not coming across from Canada again to be at your bedside. And that poor old man decided, well, perhaps nobody did one thing. It's always the vulnerable who suffer. You see, I, I fear that for the sake of the apparent compassion towards the, the Diane pretties of, of this world, euthanasia actually opens the door to a denigration of human beings, the oppression of the weak, the uh, rise in the, uh, the hospice movement in, the, in this country is an enormously positive thing where people are treated with respect, where the worst aspects of their suffering are relieved, and where they are allowed to die without having that sort of pressure on them or the extreme suffering that used sometimes to be the nature of like, people of last days. The History of euthanasia, you see, is a very dark history. We need to resist it with all our might. A third issue, that I suspect is the most important one in our society, and I'm sure you've guessed what it is: abortion. Now, I have to say that I know that this issue is closer to the hearts of, uh, of many people than anything else. I have no doubt that there are people here who have been personally hurt by that issue, for whom it is very, very close to their hearts. I want to say I, I, I have no desire to increase people's pain but we cannot afford not to look at this issue. In 1967, the Abortion Act made abortion um, legal in certain cases, including if, the continuing, if continuing the pregnancy to term would cause physical and mental suffering to the mother. And almost certainly it was not in the minds of the architects of that legislation what happened subsequently. Because very rapidly, in fact, abortion became available more or less on demand. Since then, over 5 million abortions have been performed in this country alone. It's half the population of London. Today, 187,000 abortions are performed every year overwhelmingly, for social reasons. A written answer given in the House of Commons uh, a few years ago um, said that uh, of the 5 million, 14 only had been to preserve the life of the mother. And the trend to to make abortion easier continues. At the moment, there's the possibility of making readily available an abortion pill there's real evidence as well that, that, that some abortions are performed for the most trivial of reasons. I know the case personally, uh, for instance, where a rather ill-educated lady turned at a, uh, up at a hospital saying, I've been told I must have an abortion. Uh, it turned out that a routine scan at another hospital, in fact, had revealed a tumour on the baby's face and um, they had said, you'll just have to have an abortion. The abortion was rapidly performed, and uh, afterwards, the uh, fetus, the dead fetus, was examined. It was found that the tumour was entirely benign. The mother wasn't told. When a member of staff actually questioned the consultant who'd done the abortion about whether he'd properly investigated the condition and got informed consent from the mother, His reply was, yes, but the child would have had a nasty scar on its face. That's a true story. There's a case being investigated by the police at the moment that was uh, turned up by a a student doing a study where a, a baby was aborted extremely late, six months, just because it had a cleft palate. The student who was doing the study was born with a cleft palate. Nowhere, I think, is it more obvious in this country that we treat other human beings as it than in this area. Now, some people protest. We cannot say this fetus is a human being, surely. Firstly, let me, let me say to you, there is no doubt that the Bible does say that the fetus is a human being. Just to take one example, Psalm 139 says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. That was me in there. But that's not, that's, that's not an isolated case. Everywhere where the unborn child is considered in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. That unborn child is considered as a person, as the beginnings of the person whom one day we will see as an adult. Secondly, we must understand as well, clearly, the reason that many modern ethicists Deny that the fetus is a, is a human being. They do so because they want to say that our our humanness depends on our ability to feel and think and respond to things. They call it sentience. That they say determines our human being uh, our humanness. Aside from the fact that today there is now harrowing film of fetuses actually trying to avoid the murderous instruments that are about to. Uh, kill them in the womb, there is also a real flaw in this argument about sentience. One of of the leading figures in the world of ethics today, for instance, is a man called uh, Peter Singer, recently Peter Singer, um, who, uh, who, who has pioneered this concept of sentience being the key issue for us when we're considering our responsibility to human beings and animals, interestingly enough. He produced the phrase animal liberation when he was a student here at Oxford. That's another matter. Peter Singer co-authored a, a, a book entitled Should the Baby Live? He argued with uh, a, another lady that uh, we should sanction infanticide of disabled infants He said that is the logical conclusion of where he's coming from. In another place, he says that we may actually owe more to the dog sleeping by the fire than to the disabled infant sleeping in the cot in a house. And he's logically right. But that argument about what makes a human being, you see, means that actually every other life is simply a calculation of how it might react with me. How it might interact with me. Every other human life then is not really an it, a a thou at all. It is an it. To be judged according to its abilities. There is no such thing as a person at all. I've even come across one ethicist who said that abortion was, uh, was fundamentally okay because fetuses can't voice a complaint. The weak, the vulnerable, are murdered. Maybe that you're shocked by this, because my observation that we think about abortion more and more rarely these days, as it becomes a normal part of our life, that's what happens as societies become progressively more brutalized. Roman society, you know, had a custom that uh, babies, when they were born, if the uh, father didn't want it, they would expose it on the rubbish heap. If someone else wanted it, they could come along and collect it. If no one wanted it, it died. In our sanitized technological way, we are coming very close to the brutality of that society. I want to appeal to you this morning to think about it. Especially um, those who are younger, perhaps, who may have to face issues of fertility themselves. Let me tell you a story. I had some good friends who are Christians who had not really thought about these uh, issues at all. And um, in their first pregnancy, um, they were suddenly shocked after a routine test with the news that their child was 50% likely to be uh, suffering from Down syndrome. The doctors uh, assumed that the whole... uh, um, uh, paraphernalia would be put into uh, to action to do some final tests uh, with a view to abortion. But the further tests, they were warned themselves, had a significant chance of killing the baby. They were thrown into turmoil. The poor things, in the midst of that acutely personal crisis, they had to think through from the start about what they thought about it. Thank the Lord, they they decided not to go for um, further tests and endanger the baby and they would keep the baby anyway and it was a perfectly normal baby. What a tragedy. If they had not had the courage or the presence of mind to uh, say, no, they didn't want the test. And I will say to you, Sometimes these things become very personal very quickly. Think it through for yourself. Now, Even some forms of of contraceptive are actually designed not to stop fertilization, but to stop implantation of an early embryo. If, as I can't see any other uh, way around it, if you believe that that early embryo is the beginnings of a human life, And there are grave moral implications of using those forms of contraception. And yet, a very large proportion of of people, Christian people, are not aware of that. We need to think carefully. If we are persuaded by uh, the Bible that we have a duty to respect other human beings, not because of what they can do, but because God has Made them as a vow, another person. You must take it seriously. It may be that you're feeling somewhat devastated by this, though, as frankly I always feel when I engage with these issues. Let me. Um, and by telling you a little bit more about God and the hope that he offers. First of all, we must see, though, very clearly that actually all our inhuman, murderous actions are fundamentally and ultimately against him, They find their ultimate target in him because he is what Martin Buber called the the eternal Thou. He is the source of all, all persons. King David was absolutely right when he reflected on his sins of adultery and murder and said to God in Psalm 51, against you, you only, have I sinned. Extraordinary statement in one sense. But he saw that his heartless murder of Uriah the Hittite had despised the image of God in that man. He wanted to murder God just as much as he wanted to murder Uriah. And they both stood in his way. They both were it, that other person in God's image and God himself. It was inescapable. He wanted to eliminate them both. But he knew that when he had seen that, that God offered him forgiveness. God offers us forgiveness. Whatever we have done against men and women, in his image, he offers us forgiveness. The proof we have is that he was prepared to allow his son to be murdered in order to win us that forgiveness. He says to any one of us here, whatever we have done, come back to me find in in your relationship with me an I-thou relationship. You and me as persons. And then you will find that that I-thou relationship spills out into your attitude towards other human beings. Then you will find yourself to be fully human living in relationships with other people as fully human. He says, please do not walk away from me. Please do not treat me as worthless because soon all persons will be worthless and you will face only Oh God We have each reacted to your word in different ways. For some of us, Lord, perhaps it has just gone past us. Lord, as we bow before you now, we pray that you would not Allow us to walk away without doing business with you. For some of us, Lord, it has uh, cut us deeply. We pray that you would show us personally what we need to do as we come to you now, Lord. We pray that you would reassure us of your forgiveness, your love. Of the price that Jesus Christ was prepared to pay, his death at the hand of noodles, to set us free. Change our hearts, God, we pray. You're the potter, you can remake us. We make us as you want us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name.